Good evening uh, and welcome uh, to this Latrobe Asia event, Sleepwalk to War, the Australia-US Alliance in Asia. My name is Beck Strading. I'm the Director of Latrobe Asia at Latrobe University. And I would like to begin the event this evening by acknowledging the elders of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional custodians of the land upon which Latrobe University sits. And I would like to pay my respect to their people past and present and extend that respect to any Indigenous Australians who might be with us tonight. Well, I'm really delighted to be chairing this panel discussion uh, where we will be talking about Sleepwalk to War, the new quarterly essay uh, written by Professor Hugh White. Australia, as we know, is a dedicated alliance partner to the United States, and its commitment uh, has been unwavering through changes of leadership uh, and through turbulent international developments. Uh, in fact, there's been a new Lowy poll, uh, Lowy Institute poll that was released uh, last night that highlights that the number of Australians who see the ANZUS alliance as important to their security has returned to record highs, with nine in 10 Australians saying that the alliance is very important or fairly important to Australia's security. Uh, that's a nine-point increase from last year. So they are pretty significant uh, numbers there. And while agreements such as AUKUS and the Quad seems to have strengthened our position in the region, uh, there are serious questions about whether this has come at the cost of relations to other states in the region, whether there is a possibility that the alliance in future might actually drag us into conflict, or whether we might actually be abandoned by the United States in the region. So where does this leave our future security and prosperity in Asia? And is there a better way to navigate the disruption caused by China's rise? Uh, now, there will be some time for question and answer uh, in the last part of this session. So for those of you who are joining us online, please feel free to put your questions in the chat uh, as we go through. Uh, but for now, I'm going to introduce our eminent panel. Uh, first, I'd like to welcome Professor Hugh White, uh, of course, the author of the quarterly essay that we are discussing. Uh, Hugh is Emeritus Professor of Strategic Studies at the Strategic and Defence Studies Centre of the Australian National University. Congratulations uh, on this publication. I would also like to welcome Dr Emma Shortis, who is a lecturer and historian uh, who focuses on US uh, and global environmental politics at RMIT here in Melbourne. Welcome, Emma. And coming down from Queensland today, we have Professor Andrew O'Neill, who is the Dean at the Griffith Graduate Research School at Griffith University, um, Professor of Politics at Griffith Uni. Great to have you here as well, Andrew. Well, let's get straight into it. Hugh, uh, we are sharing the golden microphone uh, <laughs> tonight, um, but I want to begin with an opportunity to describe uh, what you see to be the overarching argument of your recent essay about how Australia is managing relations with these two great powers, the United States and China. So my question to you is why do you think that the United States will probably fail Australia? I mean, particularly when it seems like the US uh, is committing itself more to the Indo-Pacific region and when Australia seems to be getting more attention in Washington than perhaps it has in the past. Well, thank you very much, uh, Beck. And 
thanks very much, uh, Emma and Andrew. It's great to have you here uh, this evening, and thanks everyone uh, for for coming. I'm really delighted uh, to have this opportunity to talk about uh, these subjects. Look, the heart of the essay is the proposition that Australia, over the last few years, as we've become more and more conscious of the challenge that China poses to the order in Asia that we've grown up with and that we know and love, we have more and more and more. Um, decided that the solution to our China problem is to rely more deeply on the United States. Now, I don't have a, so to speak, a priori problem with that. Um, my, my problem with it is simply that I don't think that's going to work because I don't think the United States is going to succeed in doing what we want it to do, which is to push China back from its ambitious agenda to take America's place as the leading power in East Asia and the Western Pacific. And uh, although I think I'd like that to happen, I don't think the United States has either the power or the resolve to uh, to resist China's pressure. Uh, and I, so I think the most likely outcome is that, uh, the, that the United States will fail and that China will end up being the dominant power in East Asia and the Western Pacific. But there, and that, in a sense, is, I think, our unthinking assumption that America can do this. Uh, is a, is a is a dangerous reflection of our inability to recognise how much things have changed, how much China has changed, and how much America has changed uh, in the in the last few years. Um, but there's also a darker side still to the argument, uh, which is reflected in the first part of the title, "Sleepwalk to War," because there are two ways America could fail to achieve its objectives and the objectives we hope it has. Uh, the first is that it could do so quietly, that is, it confronted with China's rising power, uh, confronted with the costs and risks to America of pushing back effectively against China and contesting leadership in East Asia with China, it might just decide to step back. And in fact, I would argue that that's what's happening at the moment, that what we're seeing at the moment, despite all the talk, is uh, is that the United States is, in fact, because it's failing to take the steps that I think would be necessary to effectively respond to China's challenge, it is, in effect, stepping back. And it might continue to happen, and it might happen more or less quietly and peacefully. But the other possibility is that a crisis will emerge in which the United States is confronted with a direct military ch challenge by China, perhaps over Taiwan, perhaps over something else, and that the United States, in the face of that challenge, would not pull back, but would step forward and we'd have a US-China war, and that would be, I think, a major disaster because I don't think America would win that war, and I think, in fact, I'm sure they wouldn't, and I think there's a very good chance that war would go nuclear. And it's a very important component of the argument because increasingly, at least under the previous government, and we're still not quite clear where the present government is going to go on this, but under the previous government, there was a clear tendency to believe and to argue that Australia would support the United States and indeed urge the United States to step forward into a war rather than stepping back because we believe that we are so committed to the idea of preserving US primacy in East Asia that we think it's worth fighting a war with China to do that. And I think that is quite wrong because I don't think it would succeed. Uh, I think it's not a war that the United States would win and that um, and that the, the war, because it, in particular because of the potential for it to go nuclear, I think that war would be an extraordinarily extraordinary disaster. So for that reason, you know, the sort of 
bottom line of the essay is that Australia needs to think very differently about how to respond to China's challenge, to stop relying on the United States to, to make the China challenge go away and to accept that we are going to end up living in an Asia in which China, in East Asia, in which China is the, 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 the dominant power and to start thinking, well, how do we make our way in that Asia? Um, and I do, although I think that's going to be very difficult and I think it's going to have a lot of challenges and there are going to be a lot of ways in which we'll feel nostalgic for the old days. I do think that it's not impossible. I think we can we can make a go of that. And I'd certainly rather take deal with the challenges of living in an Asia dominated by East Asia dominated by China than I would to deal with the consequences of a US-China war. Well, we have a new government in Australia, and I think uh, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese was Prime Minister for about three hours before he was on a plane to Tokyo uh, to to front up to the the Quad leaders meeting. Uh, so I wanted to ask you about these sort of strategic mini laterals that Australia seems quite enthusiastic about. I mean, Quad is is the main one, but also uh, AUKUS and what these uh, mini laterals reveal about. Australia's pursuit of security in Asia. I mean, for me, and, and perhaps you, you might disagree, but I, I sort of see AUKUS as being uh, the point where Australia makes that choice that you've been talking about for over a decade now um, to, to sort of really all in with the United States. Yeah, look, I think I think that those those groupings that you, that you mentioned, Quad and AUKUS, are a very significant part of this landscape because what one I think what you see in both of them is attempts by Australia to reassure ourselves that America can do what we hope it will do, can push China back into its box by bringing other countries into the picture. Now, if we look at the quad, you know, the, the, the big thought there is that you bring uh, India in particular and Japan in to support the United States in pushing back against China. And there's been, there is a kind of optimism that, that, that they, those two countries will provide the weight that America needs in order to succeed in in uh, in doing what Australia wants it to do, and I think that confidence is misplaced. I think it's misplaced particularly in relation to India, but I think through the Quad, what we tend to do is see India as a country whose role in life, so to speak, is to support America in maintaining U.S. primacy in East Asia and the Western Pacific. I don't think that's the way the Indians see things, and that what the way the Indians see things is what matters. India is a great power in its own right. It sees itself as the primary power in South Asia and the Indian Ocean. It will do whatever it takes to prevent China intruding into its part of the world. But I don't see India having very much interest in preventing China becoming the dominant power in East Asia and the Western Pacific. And so I think the approach that the Quad suggests we should be taking to India, which is to see India as a counterbalance to China in East Asia, gets India completely wrong. We are going to have to learn to live with India, just as we're going to have to learn to live with China, as a, as a major Asian power with a sphere of influence of its own, of which we're part. I mean, one of the interesting things about our strategic situation, and I spell this out in the essay, is that we're going to end up being part of two great powers, spheres of influence in Asia in the decades to come. We'll be part of China's sphere of influence because it will dominate East Asia and the Western Pacific, and we'll be part of India's sphere of influence because we're also an Indian, Indian Ocean country. And so I think that the Quad has this sort of radically oversimplified view of what India means in our strategic future. And I think it, it very much overstates 
what role India is going to play in supporting America and pushing back against China. And I think the same is true in a more complex way of Japan. Of course, Japan is very anxious about China, and Japan does fit, of course, very squarely in East Asia. But I think, and and and, but I think the Japanese attitude towards China is much, and towards America for that matter, is much more complicated than the quad rhetoric suggests. The Japanese would like nothing better for America to keep on playing the role that it's played for them since 1945. But Japanese have very long memories and very deep sort of historical position in this part of the world, of course. And no one in Japan doubts that that Japan has to find a way to work with China, to get on with China. And if China is going to end up with an economy, as it will, five or six or seven times the size of Japan's, then that's a, that's a world that the Japanese are going to have to live with. And so I don't think the Japanese are in nearly such stark denial as we are about the reality of what's happening. And there's a reason for that, because, you know, ever since European settlement of this continent, which is where our historical memory begins, uh, Asia has been dominated by Britain and America. And we have never tried to make our way in our unique geographical position in an Asia which isn't dominated and made safe for us by an Anglo-Saxon power. And so we have no, you know, historic imaginative resources to think about how we might do that. The Japanese find it very easy to imagine what it's like to operate in an Asia, which is not dominated and made safe for them from an Anglo-Saxon power. For them, the decades since 1945 are just a flutter of an angel's eyelid. Uh, it's, you know, this is, this is just back to normal for them. So, sorry, that was a long answer to your question, but the quote is an important part of the picture. I think AUKUS works in very different ways. AUKUS is two different things, of course. At one level, it's a capability proposal. That is great. Let's replace the Collins with nuclear-powered submarines. I think that's a really dumb idea for reasons that have to do with capability and military operations. I'll spare you that bit of the analysis now. Oh, I'm very. It's a very one of my favourite topics, but <laughs> um, but but I also think it's very significant strategically. Because exactly as you, as you mentioned in your in your way you framed the question, Beck, I do think that the 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 commitment to AUKUS was the point at which Australia ceased to uh, advertise itself as having any significant strategic difference at all from the United States in its approach to China. Until then, even under the Morrison government. Uh, they, we, Canberra went to some trouble to say that we have our views on these issues and America has, has their views on this issue and the lower there's a lot in common, there are some significant differences. With AUKUS, it seems to me we just threw that away. But the other part of AUKUS was that we brought the British back into the, in, into the calculation. I, I think the, when historians look at what we've been doing over the last couple of years, the idea that an Australian government convinced itself that Britain was going to be there to help us deal with our China problem I mean, really. The last time Britain played a significant strategic role in East Asia was the time before it withdrew the key elements of its East Asian fleet from East Asia in 1904 to meet the challenge of Imperial Germany and the North Sea. Since then, and this is what was demonstrated, of course, in 1941 and 1942, since then, Britain has not had significant strategic weight in East Asia. And the idea that's going to come back now, really? I mean, do people understand what China's achieved? That I, I think it is. I think it is a 
a truly bizarre post-imperial fantasy on the part of the British to imagine they're going to make any contribution to what happens in East Asia. And it is astonishing that Australian political leaders should decide they can put any faith in Britain again. It's, a, it's an index of how shallow the, the, the historical consciousness of that political leadership was that Morrison could say, could describe Britain as a forever partner for my parents' generation, the generation that lived through the fall of Singapore, that would seem astonishing. Thank you. Sorry, just taking some notes on that. <laughs> uh, I wanted to bring Emma into the conversation here. And actually, the note that I was just uh, taking was to ask you about the forever partner that you just mentioned uh, because you've recently published a book as well congratulations uh, called our exceptional friend which draws on history and current affairs in order to try to understand Australia's contemporary uh, alliance with the United States so uh, in terms of putting the alliance within a historical context do you think that Australia's attitudes and rhetorics have uh, rhetoric about the alliance has shifted substantially over recent years. Thanks, Beck, and thanks for the little book shout out. <laughs> I really appreciate it. Um, I, my short answer is is no. Um, I think you know Hughes rightly pointed to that really um, significant moment in Australian history around the withdrawal of the British and the understanding that the the British were no longer um, reliable. And, you know, then Australia, of course, as we all know the stories, sought out the United States as its next great protector. And since then, there's been a very, very, uh, I think, consistent history in Australia's relationship with the United States and a consistent rhetoric. And the example I would take is that that Hugh writes about um, this moment fairly recently where, very controversial moment, where Peter Dutton said that it was inconceivable that, that Australia wouldn't follow China or follow the United States into a war with China over Taiwan. And this, this got a, a lot of attention um, and, and stroked a lot of controversy. And, and for me, that was really quite interesting as somebody who looks at the history of the alliance because he's right. It is inconceivable, historically speaking, um, at least in terms of recent history, that Australia wouldn't follow the United States into a war. Australia is one of the only countries that has followed the United States into almost every war it's waged, wherever it has waged that war, since the end of the Second World War. And, and so, again, you know, that, that historical trajectory is really consistent. And I think that there's two things really that I want to draw out of that. And the first is that the foundation of that was laid with the ANZUS Treaty in 1951, where Australia looked out into the world and saw existential military threat, particularly from the North and particularly from non-white countries. That has not changed since 1951. And part of the lesson that Australian governments drew out of ANZUS and that treaty was that if Australia does follow the United States into war, if we proactively commit to American wars, sometimes even before the Americans ask us to, as Australia did in the Korean War, we will be rewarded with American security. And so we have this kind of perverse calculation where, in fact, Australian governments decide that we need to follow the United States into wars in order to protect ourselves. And again, that is entirely consistent with the kind of rhetoric that we're seeing. So AUKUS, again, you know, as he was saying, is 
completely historically consistent. It's a really important moment, but it's not a departure. It's a continuation of a doubling down on the alliance and, and particularly on security enmeshment. That's that's a path that we set ourselves on as a nation in 1951 that we, you know, we've kind of sometimes meandered off, but we've never strayed very far from it. Which is not to say that it's inevitable that we will continue down that road, but but that is historically consistent. Well, before uh, we we started this panel event, we were uh, think we were talking about the the prospect of Trump uh, being re-elected, uh, President Donald Trump coming back to power in the United States, uh, as being something that that also I, I think that Australian foreign defence policy planners probably don't want to think too much about. Um, and one of the alliance narratives is really around shared values, uh, which you know, given some of the events uh, within in the United States, Roe versus Wade recently, um, January 6 uh, riots, uh, seems like it, it might be a little bit problematic to be sort of proclaiming those shared values. And you've argued that going back to normal, going back to the normalised relationship after Trump is not only a bad idea, but a dangerous and immoral one. So I'd like to hear about why you uh, make this argument. It's pretty dramatic, isn't it? <laughs> Look, I think there's a, the, a tendency, um, even you know, even when Trump was in power, to see in Australia and in the United States, of course, to see Trump as an aberration and to see Australia's relationship with the United States under Trump as a kind of aberration. And you know, we can all be very relieved now and go back to normal. And I think that's partly reflected in the the Lowy Institute polls that you were talking about earlier. Um, I make the argument in the book that. Australia's uniquely close relationship with the United States under Trump, you know, the fact that Prime Minister Scott Morrison was one of the the last, if not the last, um, kind of Western leaders to condemn what happened uh, on January 6 in the Capitol is entirely historically consistent. It's, it isn't an aberration for Australia to have pursued that kind of relationship with that kind of administration. Because when we when we talk about shared values and we kind of chuck out this idea that we have shared values with the United States, there's a, a real refusal, I think, to grapple with what that means and what it meant for Scott Morrison and for, for Donald Trump. There was this kind of tendency to see that relationship as purely strategic and pragmatic, you know, that we needed to be close to Trump to put, kind of protect ourselves, those same arguments. And there wasn't really ever an acknowledgement about this shared ideology that was driving that relationship. And, and Trump kind of talked about it pretty openly, you know, in that sort of infamous visit in 2019 when Scott Morrison went to the state dinner, Trump talked about the, the shared historical foundations of our countries. And he, I can't remember the exact quote, but it was something about how our two nations were settled by pioneers taming the wilderness, right? And he, of course, you know, meant something different to, to I think, what Indigenous Australians and Indigenous Americans would take out of that. But that's when we talk about shared values, often that's what we mean. We mean two nations founded on dispossession and on attempted genocide. And so when we talk about shared values, we don't grapple, I think, with that foundational racism and how deeply connected that is to Trump and Morrison's relationship and how deeply connected that is to January 6 as well. So that's the immorality question for me. And the danger question, I suppose, is kind of um, the question of January 6, right? So we, again, you know, Trump is an aberration. The United States came 
so close to the brink of democratic collapse, I think much closer than we're willing to acknowledge. And that is treated largely in mainstream kind of media coverage and conversations as a domestic question and not a question for us. But I think it is dangerous for Australia, incredibly dangerous for Australia, if American democracy collapses. What happens to us if if that does happen, you know, if January 6th has a different outcome, given our security enmeshment, given our alliance, what are the implications for us? And as, as far as I can see, that's not being talked about. And I think we need a plan. I think we need a plan for that scenario. Well, Andrew, do you have a plan? I know I won't ask you that right off the bat. <laughs> but I would like to get your view. I mean, Emma, Emma talked a little bit about sort of following the US uh, into war, the insurance premium logic of, of the alliance. Um, but historically, in your view, how has the US alliance and its leadership in the region and globally benefited Australia's security? Because I think that there, there is also a kind of tendency to understate some of the benefits that have emerged from the alliance as well. Yeah, thanks, Beck. And can I just start um, by um, thanking Hugh for this um, uh, for this for this piece of work. I mean, Hugh um, Hugh uh, through his writings over the last you know 10, 15, 20 years has done um, the country's uh, I guess international relations community broadly defined a huge favour. Uh, and particularly this, the smallest strategic studies community, because he's actually forced people to re-examine their own assumptions about a series of questions, including our alliance with the United States. I'm a strong supporter of the alliance with the US, but I do see Hugh's work as um, incredibly important in getting people like me to, you know, interrogate my own assumptions uh, that, that underlie my sort of views about the alliance. So, Beck, just in relation to your question, I mean, I think there are a couple of points to be to be made here. I mean, I think the first is that having the US Alliance for Australia has essentially allowed us to free ride on an alliance. Uh, Hugh makes the point, I think, very well. Um, and, you know, frankly, I think we can talk about Australian politicians and articulation of shared values with the US. Frankly, I think a lot of that is a veneer. I don't think, you know, you know, some might buy into it, but but um, as Hugh points out, alliances are fundamentally and essentially transactional. So they've become more values-led, quote unquote, if you look at the, the rhetoric with NATO. And, and and I think that's been accentuated by the democracy v authoritarianism um, um, kind of layer, I think, that's, that's become more prevalent or, or more noticeable in international relations. But I think fundamentally, when you dig all that away, alliances are utilitarian transactional relationships. And, and from my perspective, Australia's got a very good deal from the alliance with the United States. Australia historically has got much more out of it than we've ever put into it. Uh, we've, we've kept defence expenditure low, essentially, since the Vietnam War. Uh, and the intelligence take we get from the US, and I know this is often put out there, but the intelligence take we get from the US um, is something that we would not otherwise get. And we can repurpose that for national interest and it's not about just serving the alliance so um you know I, I you know I think the alliance has served Australia pretty well and I think any costs that we've borne have not necessarily always been imposed by Washington they've actually been imposed by Australian leaders who you know at certain points and and Hugh makes this point quite well I think that you know we haven't we haven't pushed back we haven't questioned when we should have been questioning and and that's what you know, that's what robust alliances 
should do. And I think if you look at the history of the relationship, there have been instances where we have, we've, we've made bad decisions. So we supported the US in Iraq. Uh, we supported the US to, you know, the last drop of American blood in Vietnam. Um, so, you know, we've made these decisions. Uh, we haven't, uh, I think Kim Beasley put it, what we need to be is is, is a critical a critical alliance friend to the United States. We need to call it out when we think it's not doing the right thing. So I guess that's a very sort of long-winded way of saying um, I actually think we've got more out of the alliance than we've put in. Uh, whether that's sustainable is is another question. I think Hugh clearly believe. I'm not going to verbal you here, Hugh, but I, I think you would argue that the, the good times are over, and that uh, we're now uh, down down the road where the choices for Australia are narrowing. I'm a little more optimistic than Hugh about that. Um, I don't actually think it's an either or choice for the US or China going to war. The US seeding primacy. I think I think it's going to be somewhere in between that but I don't have a crystal ball. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wanted to, to stick with you and press you on, on some of the points that you raised before going back to, to Hugh for comment on, on those responses. Uh, but uh, one of the, I think, one of the issues is around the nature of Australian agency. Uh, and not a, you know, there is this sort of, this argument out there that Australia can be a lapdog of the United States and we, and we follow along. But it seems to me when you talk about political leaders that sometimes Australia is sort of further out on in front in some of this stuff than what even the United States is. Uh, so I was wondering your view on whether Australia's alliance with the US, um, you know, how that relates to the nature of Australia's independence and the nature of its agency. Do we confuse Washington's interests for our own or what do... Oh, oh, or do we see Australian policymakers uh, sort of independently or in their sovereign, sort of sovereign capacity making decisions to try and deepen cooperation and anchor the United States in the region? Yeah, thanks, Beck. And they're great questions. Um, look, my sort of feeling on this is that most, if not all, Australian cabinet ministers uh, are nationalists, not in the bad nationalist sense, but the good nationalist sense in the sense that they have the national interest at heart, and they do believe that the alliance can um, help Australia achieve those national interests. Um, it's just that a lot of the rhetoric publicly is kind of counter to that. If you look at if you look at uh, Peter Dutton's rhetoric, for example, you know, frankly, I think a lot of that was driven by domestic political imperatives. I think um, it was kind of, uh, you know, any what, and clearly Scott Morrison was was part of that as well, and and you had sort of people bandwagoning with that rhetoric. But I but I actually think this Australian policymakers at senior levels make decisions that they believe we might disagree, but they believe are fundamentally in the national interest, and that is supporting the US will get us. I think someone referred to the insurance premium before we bought up our stock of credits. The US will come to the party if our security is ever threatened down the road. Now, we can have a debate about whether that's a wise strategy, but my view is there has been a logic to that. Um, what was the other question, Beck? Sorry, there were a few there. Uh, I think you pretty much cracked it. I've answered it. <laughs> good. Thank you. Well, and it's a good uh, it's a good time to, to pass the golden microphone back to Hugh to get a response on some of this. The good days are over. I think that... Um, Sounds like you you'd support that kind of idea. Yeah, look, uh, that, that's right, and it's a it's a beautifully constructed panel because I find myself neatly positioned between my <laughs> two colleagues, which I would like to be. Um, look, um, the 
there's a lot, lot in all of that. Uh, I mean, I, I should say, I, I think Emma's book is, is terrific. It takes a very different kind of approach to the alliance from mine and indeed to international relations to mine, but I found it really stimulating. I think the way you use history is, is really good. Well, I guess I'd, I, I'd, I'd make a couple of points about that. The first is that, um, uh, like Andrew, I, I tend to downplay the way in which political leaders talk about values. Um, I do tend to think that political leaders start talking about values when it's patently clear that whatever it is they've committed themselves to doing is no longer in our interests. And uh, you, know, you could see this, for example, in Iraq. Uh, John, when, when we first went into Iraq in 2003, John Howard said, this is all about serving Australia's national interests. And when the whole thing turned to custard, he said, no, no, this is all about supporting our values. Um, I, I, when I look at the US alliance back in, in its, you know, the way it's been over, well, since 1942 or 1951, seems to me to be that, that the primary thing it has done for us has not been, um, uh, or I'll put it a different way, the foundation of Australia's security over the 80 years since the Second World War has not been the fact that the United States has provided us with a security guarantee, which they, which we might be able to cash if anyone attacks us. It's the fact that the US strategic power in Asia has prevented threats arising, has kept the kept the region stable. So I and and the extent to which the alliance has our alliance with the United States has contributed to our security has been the extent to which our alliance with the United States has helped to preserve the, to support the United States dominant position in East Asia. And, and I think US dominance in East Asia has worked to our advantage. Now, I think you can actually make the argument that the alliance, that our alliance with the United States has been a bit irrelevant to that. Alliance with Japan hasn't been. Alliance with Japan has been absolutely critical, but I have a feeling we could have free, free written even more. We could have done a little bit more like New Zealand, in other words, or at least what New Zealand's done since 1984. But I, uh, but I think um, uh, the, the the big difference, you know, between periods periods and today, the reason why I think the good times are over, is that I do, you know, they say in the investment advice, you know, past performance is no guarantee of future performance, and and what I think, and this gets to Andrew's point, I, I think I think Andrew is, is right actually. I mean, I've spent quite a lot of my career working with ministers on both sides of politics and most of the time almost all the time actually the vast majority of them really are focused on doing the right thing but they don't necessarily think very much uh, there's a great line by the late great owen harry's in which he said uh, something like never underestimate the importance of habit in political affairs particularly amongst people who don't think very much now, Owen Harris thought a great deal, so that was a rather snide comment on his part. But but the, but we are talking about habit here because I think one of the things that that has driven Australian policy on both sides of politics right up to today has been the habit of relying on the United States because the United States has worked well for us, I would say, for a long time. Uh, but things are different now because the United States used to have the biggest economy in the world by miles. It used to have an overwhelming domination of all the key technologies, and it used to be overwhelmingly the most powerful air and maritime uh, military power globally and in Asia. And the fact is those things just aren't true anymore. The world we live in today, very different from the world uh, we used to live in. Keynes once said, J.M. Keynes once said that the hardest thing to get our heads around is the idea that the future is going to be different from the past. 
And that's, you know, for someone of my generation, the fact that China's economy is already bigger than America's and going to get bigger still in the years ahead is kind of hard to get my head around. You sort of tend to think that America is the biggest economy in the world almost by definition. Certainly a lot of Americans think that. Uh, but, but that's just not true. The Australian government's own figures um, released actually in a rather obscure report and without any comment uh, back in February, put it this way, that today China's economy is 19% of global GDP and America's is 16%. In 2035, which is the day after tomorrow in this business, China's economy will be 24% of global GDP and America's will be 14%. Now, wealth is the foundation of power. So that is a difference in, in sheer raw power of enormous proportions. And the idea that America can continue to play the role it used to play in Asia when it had the world's biggest economy and its air and maritime capability to run challengeable. In a new era in which China is a lot stronger and is air, economically and its air and maritime capabilities are, are at least very comparable to the United States, and it has all the advantages of geography and operating in East Asia. It just, just defies the laws of strategic gravity, if I can put it that way. And so my my criticism of the of the present political milieu and both sides of politics, because I think Labor is very much heading down the same path, is not that they are not sort of doing their best. Um, it's that their best isn't good enough because they're not exercising sufficient imagination or sufficient recognition of the way in which the world we deal with today is different from the world we've dealt with in the past. And I think there's also an element of timidity there because one of the things that's very distinctive about Australia's experience is that it has, and our experience of being able to depend on the United States to keep Australia safe because we've been able to depend on the United States to keep Asia stable and prevent any major hostile power emerging. Uh, is that it's made, it's made Australian foreign policy pretty easy. And that's nice, you know. Uh, you don't want to look for more trouble than you have to. I've never believed that an independent foreign policy is a good thing in itself. If you can successfully depend on somebody else, why wouldn't you? But, but and, and, and as long as it worked, I had no trouble with it. But my problem is it's just not going to work anymore because the fundamentals of power and resolve have, have shifted. Uh, but I do think that one of the problems, one of the reasons why our present generation of political leaders, and I might also say the risk of offending my former colleagues and I hope not former friends in the Commonwealth Public Service, um, is that I think those people who carry responsibility for managing these issues are a little bit frightened of the responsibility this imposes on us. We are going to have to make our own way in Asia in a way that we haven't had to do before. And I do think one of the things that's happened is that the sort of sense of optimism and dynamism and excitement about framing Australia's future in Asia in the decades to come, which was evident with Whitlam, certainly, with Fraser too, actually, in a different way, with Hawke and with Keating, all of that enmeshment with Asia stuff kind of died in 1996. And and I think we've never recovered it. Um, we didn't recover it, oddly enough, considering all the circumstances, but we didn't recover it with Rudd. 
We didn't recover it with Gillard. And the, 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 you know, the, 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 the AUKUS thing, the idea that we turn back to concept of an Anglosphere and we turn back to the idea that Australia frames itself primarily as an alien insertion into the Asian hemisphere, uh, reappeared, sort of had a, you know, Frankenstein re-emergence under Howard, which has never died. So I think we're, we're, we now find ourselves with a political structure, set of ideas, which make it harder for our political leaders and their advisors to imagine what it means for Australia to make our way in Asia without American support than it, than it would have otherwise. You know, Paul Keating, when he said on the eve of the election, you change the government, you change the country, he was right. They are deeply uncomfortable questions. <laughs> that... I mean, it, 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 it's, it's no part of my argument this is going to be good. It's not. <laughs> It's not. I mean, this point. I love U.S. primacy. If if I could if I could vote, it's because I contemplate what the alternative looks like. Uh, you know, it's not. It's. I mean, I sort of. I, I do kind of. I'm. I'm not as negative about. I, I. I said lots of negative things about America, but I don't. I. I still think in the end it's been a force for good for Australia, but I just don't think it's going to be there anymore. And so you know, no good waiting for it. I think it really depends on how we see the future uh, and 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 you know what what's going to happen um, in in East Asia in particular. But Emma, I just wanted to before we get to the the Q and A, I'll, I'll ask a final question of Emma and Andrew. Uh, but Emma, I mean, part of the challenge, and I'm sure that you get this question a lot, <laughs> is what do you do uh, about the US alliance? Like how can it be fundamentally restructured uh, in yeah. the way that you, you propose in your book? Yeah, sure. If not the US, who is the question that I get all the time? And it's an absolutely fair enough question. And I think, um, you know, maybe it's surprising kind of given the tenor of my book that I, I don't advocate for abandoning ANZUS. You know, I'm, I'm very much with you there. I don't think that's either realistic or productive. I don't think throwing ANZUS out the window is going to magically fix our relationship with China. And it certainly wouldn't address those kind of underlying historical structures that I'm talking about. Um, and that, that Hugh talks about as well. You know, I think if we do want to examine those shared values, if we do want to really rethink Australia's role in the world and why it is that we seek out, we Australian government seek out continually seek out white protectors and look for the revival of the Anglosphere. If we want to rethink that, then we have to look deeper. We have to look at the foundation of this nation and understand why it is that Australian governments look out into our region in particular with fear um, and, and often anger. And I think that involves examining, again, as I said, that foundation. And if we want to if we want to reset, if we want to rethink, if we want more than just kind of tinkering at the edges of our foreign policy, then as a nation, we're going to have to face that history and, and do fundamental things like implementing the Uluru Statement from the heart in full and in good faith. That's that's the kind of steps I think that we we're going to need to take if we want to really reform um, and, and reconsider Australia's role in the world. And we have a new government promoting a First Nations foreign policy, so that might be a place to start. But, Andrew, I wanted to get your take. You said that you're a bit more optimistic about um, the future, uh, particularly, I, I think, about the US in Asia, uh, because there seems to be a bit of a, a tension maybe between the two alternatives that we might, the, 
the, the, the first alternative that the US kind of abandons us and the second is we get dragged into war. So what's your kind of view on this? Yeah, look, I think, uh, I, I think the predictions of US decline, you know, you, you can go back a long way and, and, and history is littered with predictions of US decline the fact the US is going to, you know, sort of withdraw to within the water's edge, that it'll it'll retreat isolationism. And, you know, that was particularly prevalent after Vietnam. And, and then, you know, 19, 1981, you have kind of Ronald Reagan come along with the presidency and it's morning again in the US. And so I think we need to be very careful uh, predicting the imminent sort of decline or demise of the United States in, in our region. The second point I would make is to we, we, we need to be equally cautious in not treating China as sort of 10 foot tall and bulletproof. China has a lot of domestic issues that they need to deal with, and they are not just passing sort of public policy challenges, a lot of them are wicked problems around demography, uh, around the nature of government in China. Uh, and, and, you know, there is a reason also why a lot of countries in the region are, are, are anxious about China's rise. And there's a reason why a lot of them aren't vocal in their support for the United States staying in the region. And those reasons are often domestic reasons. So, I, you know, I, I just think that um, the sort of the binary nature of, of you know, the US decline demise, retrenchment, China's rise, assuming the mantle of primacy. I don't, I don't, I think it's going to be much more, it's going to be much messier for that. Hugh's right in the sense that a war uh, will catalyze that if and when it happens over Taiwan. There are many other contingencies as well where the US and China may sort of come into confrontational crisis. And Korean Peninsula is often one that, you know, that doesn't sort of come up, but I think it's, it's, it's certainly there. So I guess, Beck, you know, to, to 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 sort of round that off, I I would be cautious of uh, predicting U.S. decline and demise again, uh, and and cautious of not sort of exaggerating China's rise. And and one of the the things that we haven't managed to to cover just uh, during this panel is that the new quarterly essay does sort of talk about Taiwan uh, and Ukraine as well, and what these new developments. So they've got themes that have resonated through your work, but with that kind of um, you know examining these case studies, if you like. Uh, but I am going to turn it to our audience. I'm going to ask the people who are in the room tonight whether there are any questions. Um, I can see we've got a couple, so I might. Oh, I might take um, two or three at a time. I'm going to um, pass this gentleman. If you want to keep your question brief, that would be great. One of the great pieces of blather that comes out of government white papers and a lot of the think tanks is we have to defend the rules-based order against China. Why is there so little critique of the rules-based order, given most of our neighbours are trying to change the rules? People are at the WTO wanting trips waivers for COVID vaccines. Our Pacific neighbours want to change the law of the sea. You know, we just had the conference in Vienna trying to get rid of nuclear weapons. I mean, like there are a lot of people trying to change the rules. We're not part of that. Why not? You, I see you had a question up the back here as well. Yep. Thank you for the talk today. So my question is, how do we manage China if uh, America is going to withdraw or it's likely to be not the primary power in Southeast Asia. And that's a question, I think, not just for Australia. It's a question for a lot of countries in East Asia, Southeast Asia and India. I'm glad you asked that because there's quite a few questions in the Q&A online box that were along the similar theme about China. Uh, Danielle, did you have a question too? 
Thanks. Um, thanks, everyone. So I had a question about what it would take for the strategic assumptions that underlie our current defence policy to radically shift in the way that you're kind of suggesting. We know that it won't come from the Australian public. In fact, any such decision would have to be damage controlled on the ground. So, and, and it's very hard to imagine the Defence Department giving that kind of advice. So how would that work? Like what would what would have to happen in Australian politics and in the Australian public service for those kinds of changes to happen? Thank you. Uh, so if I can just summarise, rules-based order, China, strategic imagination, and I will hand <laughs> you, Emma and Andrew, I'll give you an opportunity to speak to part or all three of those questions. Look, you're absolutely right. I, I do see the phrase rules-based order along with free and open Indo-Pacific and a few of the others as simply code words for let's hang on to US primacy. Yeah. And, and, and I don't have a problem with that. But I, but I think it's just it's just a euphemism for covering up what is essentially a privileging of the status quo, um, and I like the status quo, but I don't think keeping on talking about it in those terms really works. And I agree that talking about the rules based order has a little bit of a hollow ring. We were, after all, the guys who, along with the United States, invaded Iraq. That that was you know that was actually we broke the same rule. This is a bit of an unfashionable thing. Too. We broke the same rule that Putin broke. Uh, you know, just just a, little, just a little bit edgy. So I, I dismiss all of that. We, we, we want to preserve the status quo because we like it. The Chinese want to change the status quo because they don't like it and they want to replace it with one they like better. I, I As I say, for, I would prefer to live under American primacy than Chinese primacy, but I don't think we should pr privilege the status quo the way that phrase tries to tries to do it. The most important part of the answer is I don't know. I mean, you know, this is this is really hard. But there's two points to make. The first is that um, I think it's going to be very difficult for us, all of us, and I want to say us, I don't just mean Australia, I mean all of the countries in East Asia, to, to, to really keep the space for ourselves to be what we want to be in the light of China's power and influence. Um, but and so you know we shouldn't underestimate how difficult this is going to be. But I don't think we should be too pessimistic about the way China is going to use its power, because I because I think there's a reasonable chance that the Chinese are not going to be too interested in interfering in our internal affairs, except to the extent that it really affects what happens in China. Anything that affects what happens in China, oh yes, they'll do whatever it takes. But the idea that, which has become very much part of the debate in Australia, that China is actively setting out to undermine our political system and transform us into an autocracy, I, I just don't, I just don't see it. I just don't see the evidence for it. And and you know there are differences. I mean, during the Cold War, the the, the guys in the Politburo in Moscow really did want to make Australia a communist country. I mean, that was their declared policy. They wanted to make the whole world communist. Um, it, you know, the 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 the, the folk in Zhongnan High aren't 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 like that. Um, so, you know, I don't think we want to be too pessimistic about it. The second is, you know, this is going to sound like a rather simplistic observation, but I, I think it's going to be really hard to manage China's power. But I think it's going to be. I'd much rather do that than to manage the consequences of U.S.-China war. And I don't think we're going to stop China without a war. I don't think we're even going to stop China with a war. I just, uh, but, but I think, you know, one of the big differences between me and a lot of other people in this debate is that I, I, I think avoiding war is more important than preserving US primacy.
that's a big difference between me and Peter Dutton, for example. Um, Danielle, I've forgotten what your question was. Oh, what a time. Oh, God. Yes. <laughs> How can I forget that one? Um, look, I think it, let's, let's be really clear. It's perfectly possible that we're going to completely screw this up as a country, that we're just going to sail forward. And just a bit of extrapolation here, but we are going to depend more and more heavily on the United States to deal with a more and more powerful and assertive China as America becomes less and less capable of doing anything about it. And it's just worth making the point, because I think it's a very important point that Emma touched on. To me, it doesn't matter too much whether the White House goes back to Trump or one of the Trumpoids that are sort of circling for 2024, or it remains in whoever the Democrats might dig up. It's, it, I mean, it's not that I don't think Trump is important. I think it's incredibly important and grotesque in all sorts of ways. But I don't actually think America's capacity to deliver what we in Australia are still hoping they'll deliver depends very much on who's in the White House, because I think it's it's a quite bipartisan thing that America is just over the the, the costs and risks of exercising global leadership in the way in the way that they are doing it. So they keep on talking about this stuff, but they don't have the resolve and the resources to do it. So I think the most likely outcome is that is that we will just screw this up. But and not funny. <laughs> I mean, you know, this is how countries fail. Actually, you know, we we could really screw this one up. But let me be optimistic for a moment. I I tend to, and I speak as a long term bureaucrat. Um, in in the end, the leadership does come from the ministers. And, and I, I don't think we will ever get the public service to go forward to the kinds of government and the kind of ministers operating in a kind of public opinion, atmosphere of public opinion we have today, exactly as you said, um, and say, look, um, you know, it's, it's, all, it's all wrong. We need to do something completely different. And I, I'm a, I can be a little bit anecdotal about that because as someone who's been banging on about this stuff and roughly speaking, seeing them from the same sheet of music for, you know, 12 years now, um, I know how resistant the system is to this to this argument. Um, so we won't change unless we get real political leadership. Now we haven't seen much real political leadership over the last little while, um, quite a few years now. But I don't completely despair that we might see it. When I look back at other episodes in Australian history, when I look back at the way in which Australian political leaders in the late 19th century responded to the decline of British power, which they did see in the late 19th century, in the way that we don't see the decline of American power today. And they did all sorts of quite spectacular things, including federation, in order to respond to that. When I look back and see how Australian political leaders of the day responded to the unbelievable transformation of Asia after 1945, the collapse of the European empires, the emergence of independent states, you know, like Indonesia on our doorstep, and the way Australia kind of, you know, under 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 Evatt, under Spender, under uh, under Casey, built a foreign policy for Australia based on the fact that we were no longer living in a world of empires. We were living in a world of independent Asian states. And I I think we don't we don't give ourselves enough credit for what we did there. And likewise, I think the way in which Australian political leaders responded after the failure in Vietnam and the failure of forward defence redefined our our diplomacy, redefined our defence policy around new strategic circumstances. These were people who looked at the world 
with a careful, critical, analytical eye, didn't just accept that the, you know, the old shibboleths that have been handed down. And even the ones like Menzies, who talked about, you know, the great British Empire and so on, actually look at the documents. He was a lot more sophisticated and critical, even Menzies, who was a lot more sophisticated and critical than one might think. And some of the people around him were very sophisticated and critical. And that inspired the public servants who served them. Serve them. So if you look at the, you know, the Arthur Tangs and so on, who could be pretty frank and fearless in the advice they gave, but they were doing it in an environment in which that's what ministers wanted. And so I, I think if we get if we get political leaders who are prepared to start performing to specification, then I think we'll get public servants who start responding. You know, there's still plenty of talent in the public service. Um, you know, we we speak as people who've educated some of them, so you know, we know how good some of them are. Thank you. Now, I, I'm aware that we're running out of time, but there's a couple. No, 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 you're okay. Um, there, I, I did want to get Emma's view, but I also actually, there's a, there's a good um, question in the Q&A, Emma, uh, about, and, and this, I think it's a, it's an important point if we're thinking about the US and China is that, um, you know, while, uh, you know, there might be reason to be sceptical about the sort of shared values narratives and, and, you know, the closeness of political systems that, you know, compared to China, the United United States is much closer to Australia's political system. So I wanted to get your view on that. Yeah, that is a um, that's a really good question that I'm I'm probably not sure how to answer. I think I would probably um, maybe I'll kind of link it to, to the other questions That'd as well and and talk particularly. You know, I couldn't agree with more with you about the, the rules based order and the way that that you know has has suited us in particular. And and when it comes to the question of China, I think. It's very hard to talk about this without being accused of kind of both sizing the situation. But I think it it is a historical truism to say that there is nothing that China has done in the world that doesn't have some kind of American equivalent, right? And that doesn't mean we don't condemn it, absolutely. But it's a recognition that a lot of what China does, if we're talking about economic coercion, for example, it happens in a system that the United States built to benefit the United States. And the fact that that's been turning, turned around and is making us angry, I think we need to examine again why it is when we're talking about shared values that we are condemning actions that the United States has taken many times. It's just that they haven't hurt us in particular. Um, and, and we use the term us, I'm guilty of this as well, a bit too loosely, I think. Um, so I don't think that answers the question that <laughs> I'm aware of time, but I think we have to acknowledge and hold in our heads many things at once, including the deep-seated racism that informs too much of Australian foreign policy, not just towards China, but to the region more broadly. Thank you. And last word goes to you, Andrew. You might want to respond to um, the questions that we just had, but there is also another one about um, states uh, like India and Japan and the role that they play. Um, and the question is, why shouldn't Australia seek to deepen cooperation with Japan and India in order to counter China? Yeah, look, I agree with you here. I think there are limits to the depth of, of cooperation that we can have with, with India, uh, certainly on security matters. I think the non-aligned movement strain uh, philosophy runs deeply through Indian foreign and defence policy. And um, and so I think we, we, we're kidding ourselves if we think we can build an anti-China coalition. Um, and I think, you know, in serious reflective moments, I don't think any serious Australian strategist would, would believe that. Um, with Japan, I, I think there's more overlap. But, but even here, I think the Japanese 
you know, often talk the talk around security commitments, but when it comes to actually putting money on the table, well, not money, that's the wrong metaphor, but, you know, committing uh, to operations, um, you know, there, there are limits to, to, to that and, and there are good, you know, there are good constitutional, political and, and normative reasons for that in Japan. But but I think there are limits to both. What, one point I just wanted to pick up that was made earlier about uh, the region, uh, the region's response to China, I think it's interesting, <clears throat> excuse me, and this sort of goes back to, I guess, a tradition that's associated more with Labor governments, but you still see it under coalition governments, and that is the capacity of Australia to build like-minded coalitions with small and middle powers in the region. And I don't think we should underestimate that in relation to pushing back against China. I do think China is intent on corroding Australian democracy. I think China's intent on corroding democracy everywhere. So in order to push back against that, yes, the US is one part of that, but actually building coalitions with like-minded democracy in the, in the region, including Indonesia, is, is key to pushing back. Uh, and to the extent that we can, you know, clear some of the, de- you know, some of the barnacles uh, away in terms of, I think, Frankly, what the previous government ha- has done in terms of sending some some wrong signals to the region, in order to enable that, I think this government is is probably in the box seat to do that. So I don't think we should lose sight of the agency of small and medium powers. We're, we're not just in a world of great powers here. Other countries matter. Absolutely, I think that's a good place uh, to end. So. Thank you, Hugh, Emma and Andrew for joining us tonight. It's been you know, a fascinating conversation and please follow us on Twitter at Latrobe Asia. Join our mailing list to find more details for online events and publications. But thank you to our audience both here in the room, here in Melbourne and online for joining us. I'm sure you'll agree it was a really interesting, thought-provoking, a little bit scary at times conversation. <laughs> thank you.